All right, here we go. This is the Friday Q&A. And our first question for today comes from Christina E., who asked a question about heaven. And she says, I've been feeling a little anxious about heaven. What do we do? What will we do with our time for eternity? Will we have actual bodies or just be spirits? Now, I know from me when I was a younger person, um, I used to think about heaven kind of in the terms of like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, if I can uh, date myself a bit. So, you know, you're up kind of on a cloud or, or something sort of ethereal, non-corporeal, kind of ghost-like experience, not like a real tangible experience, more ghost-like, and you're singing all the time. You're basically just singing continually or playing music, and it's static. It's unchanging. The experience doesn't alter or change, and any kind of single experience going on for eternity seems intimidating. But the question is whether this is biblical or not. So I'd like to talk about some misconceptions about heaven, not just the Bugs Bunny ones, but rather the right perceptions about heaven based upon some biblical passages we're going to look at real quickly. So for our first question today, let's tackle the topic of heaven. Um, it turns out that I think a lot of people's perceptions of heaven come not just from Bugs Bunny cartoons, but as I think about it more, I think it's coming from church services. So not, not this is not a hit on church services, but I think what happens is we imagine what heaven will be like, and we think, okay, it'll be like the stuff I do at church. And for many people, a church service involves you go and you sit down, or maybe you're standing for certain parts, and you're singing, and you're being taught or preached to, and then you're singing some more. And you don't really expect the preaching and teaching to happen as much in heaven because there's this fullness of knowledge and stuff like that. So it's mostly just all that's left is standing there and singing. And so a lot of people visualize heaven like it's just standing and singing all the time. Obviously, they might be thinking, I shouldn't say obviously, but they might be thinking, oh, but it'll involve like a closeness with God, a the presence of God. And, and that can be the thing that helps them go, oh, well, that will be that will be the thing that makes it all still wonderful and good and, and, and not just tolerable, but actually enjoyable. Um, but I think there's a lot more to it than that. So first, let me explain the difference between two different heavens the Bible talks about, the heaven we have now and the heaven we will have for eternity, because we will not have the current heaven for eternity. That's actually really important. And then I'm going to answer the question about why eternity won't feel like it's going on for too long, <laughs> at least in my opinion. Um, so let's talk first about this now heaven versus the later heaven, the current heaven versus the final and eternal heaven. So now when you die, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are, your body stays in the ground and you go into the presence of God. You are disembodied. So you are without a body. I don't, I don't think cartoons do this experience justice because it's not like you're a ghost outline of a body or something like that, but you are without a body. And uh, in Revelation, the book of Revelation, you can read a little bit about this. And my understanding is that in Revelation, when we read about these, these souls that are there in heaven, and they're there in the presence of God. They're under his altar, which is actually, it may seem like a strange picture of souls under the altar, you know, and under the, the throne, under that, sorry, under the throne of God. And it may seem like a bit of a strange picture, but the closeness, the proximity to God under his protection and, and his, his, um, his guard, guardianship, right? Like that's actually a pretty interesting picture that we're getting with that image. So if I die now, I'm going to be, without a body for a season. And in that season, I will be in God's very presence. And uh, Paul talks about this as well, how his desire is, is to depart from this body that he might be with Christ, um, even though he will eventually not be disembodied. That's a temporary thing. This is a, a short-term temporary situation. 
So we can read about what this is like as we read about, say, Psalm 16. I'll give you several verses that will kind of help fill in some of the details here. It won't be like a full teaching on the topic of heaven or something like that, but I think it will give you some good stuff to think about. So in Psalm 16:10, David talks about the afterlife experience, and he mentions something about the presence of God that's very important for us. He says, For you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. This is life after death. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David did not give us a description here in Psalm 16 of all of the eventualities of heaven, like everything heaven would be like, but he gave us a description of what it was like to be in God's presence. Now, in the now heaven and in the eternal later heaven, in both of these, God's very presence will be there. So this description is true for both experiences. So when I die, and though I'm disembodied for a season, I will be in God's presence where there is what? Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. This is not the way that the world tends to think about heaven. It's even not the way Christians often think about heaven. Imagine your capacity for joy being full. That's the description there, fullness of joy. Like, here's how much joy I can have. I have this capacity, maximal joy. I will have that when I'm in God's presence because God is that glorious and that wonderful that just in his presence, you will simply be overflowing with joy and you will have pleasures forevermore, not carnal, not sinful, wonderful and holy pleasure you will be experiencing. That's in God's presence. But this this sort of now heaven, this, this is a time of waiting. It's a time of comfort. It's a time of joy and pleasure, but it's a time of waiting. This isn't the heaven that lasts forever, so this is not your eternal experience. Later, we will get resurrected bodies, and the Bible is so huge on this. Remember Jesus, he didn't just die and rise a spirit being. He died and he rose a physical being because we will have physical bodies in our resurrection. And the Bible's huge on this. This is something a lot of Christians miss because they're often thinking of the, the now heaven and not the eternal heaven. But if you're going to ask questions about what it will eternity be like, you got to ask about the eternal heaven, not the now heaven. Does that make sense? So this is totally different. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. Let me read to you a section of 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about what our future bodies will be like. You might want to read all of 1 Corinthians 15 because it ties together Jesus' death and resurrection with these things as well. But I'll read a section of it to us now. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that's this body that dies, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So this, fu this future body that you're resurrected with, it's not like your current body. It can't, it can't die. It's imperishable. It's, it's meant for eternity. So it's, it's, it's different. Your new body will be different than your old one. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So it'll be a glorified body, not like this, these fallen selves that we have now. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It'll be powerful. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, which I think that when Paul uses the phrase spiritual body, he doesn't mean um, ghost-like body, like it'll be ethereal. What he, I think he means is spiritual-like um, in, the, in the sense of where Paul talks about walking in the spirit. In Galatians, he says, walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. That this, this body will be taking cues of godliness at, at all times. I'll be walking in holiness. So this is a natural body versus the spiritual, godly, and holy body that I'm going to be having and living. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's talking about Jesus there, became a life-giving spirit. 
So again, we're not, it's not incorporeal or this ghost-like thing because Jesus, while he's, this, he's a life-giving spirit, he also has a physical body. So there's both. It's, it's both physical and spiritual. But it is not that the spiritual that is, it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was formed, uh, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, that's Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And the Bible does this thing where it, it likens our future physical body to be like Jesus's glorified body. So there's this, this connection, just like my earthly body's like Adam's body was, so my future resurrected body will be like Jesus's glorified body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. Let me read a few more verses. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that our future bodies won't have flesh or blood. He means, I think, merely flesh and blood, Adam's flesh and blood. You need a new birth and a new resurrection with a new body to inherit the kingdom. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Right? We're going to be changed. Even those who don't die, when Jesus returns, you'll go through a transformation from the old body into the new without having actually died. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and here's what happens when Jesus returns, right? The dead will be raised imperishable. That's, that's, that means they got that new body. And we, whoever's alive, right, when Jesus shows up, we shall be changed. So they'll be raised with resurrected bodies and will be transformed directly from our current bodies into the changed body, the new resurrected body. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So, Different bodies, better bodies, um, we're expecting that. Um, but this means that there's more going on than what we visualize in these sort of, you know, colloquial images of heaven about just singing all the time, that sort of thing. There's more going on there. I have a physical body. Why would I even have this body unless I was going to do physical things? There's more going on than singing in the eternal state of heaven. And I'd be okay if it was just solid singing and I would just trust that God's designed me for that and I will, and I will be um, more fulfilled doing that forever than anything else. But, I, but I'm saying that's not the biblical teaching on the topic, so we shouldn't say that. So 1 Peter chapter 3, though, shows that it's not just me. Just like my body will go through this change of this current corrupt body into an imperishable and glorious glorified body like Jesus's, so the entire universe and even heaven, right, will go through a change as well. So this is, this is, uh, is kind of neat when you think about it. You realize what we're looking for is not just a location change for eternity where I go from earth to heaven. Rather, I'm looking for a new body and a new earth and a new heaven. And then things will be different then than they are now. So let's look briefly at that. Then I'll go to your guys' questions from the live chat that we do every Friday here. At 1 p.m. Pacific time, whatever time of year it happens to be, it's always Pacific time, at least, where I live. <laughs> so um, let's go to, there we go, to the 
the Bible. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, look how he talks about not just our bodies changing, but heaven and earth changing. This matters because you're, you're asking what heaven will be like. Well, it won't be like it is now. It's going to be different. Um, oh, I may have got the wrong verse. 2 Peter. Oh, it's 2 Peter. That's, that's why. That's why. There we go. So Peter here talks about um, the, the current state of the natural world, and he says that all these things are thus to be dissolved. Therefore, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the com coming of the day of God, talking about that same kind of thing where we get resurrected, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So he's talking about like kind of, you know, the, the greater, wider universe. But this isn't something we're just excited. Let it burn! It's not like that kind of thing. Not at all. It's a transformation that's taking place. There's a there's two stages, right? Like there's the destruction and then there's the remaking. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. So there's definitely a new heavens and a new earth that are going to be created. And he gives one little description of what they'll be like. In which righteousness dwells. There will be perfect righteousness. There will be no sin. There will be no corruption. There will be no destruction. There will no, not be anything wicked going on in the new state of things. So we'll have resurrected, glorified, holy bodies, and we'll be living in a remade, righteous heaven and earth. But, but there's more. Revelation 21 tells us that this new heaven is not going to be like the old one. Let's look at how it's qualitatively very different. This will this will finally answer your question about what, what will I do in heaven. I think it will open up a world of possibilities of things we will do in heaven because heaven isn't in heaven anymore in the new creation. Let's read this. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. So he's talking about the same thing Peter was. Here John is writing. And he tells us the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is an activity, right? The, 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 the heavens and the earth are gone. And then what does he see to replace them? He sees this heavenly city, Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, coming down, like being lowered to the earth. Now, whether this is a physical event or if it's metaphorical about the meeting of heaven and earth, you guys can debate that in the live chat if you want. <laughs> um, but coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold. Now, what, what, is this, what does this mean? I'll tell you the meaning of, of this whole thing in a second. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And if you ever wonder, how could I experience comfort in heaven when I have maybe loved ones who aren't going to be there? How could I experience comfort even though I've gone through such hard, horrible, horrific atrocities and things in my life and seen them and heard of them from others? And it's because God has the comfort to wipe away those tears and bring you genuine relief from any kind of grief and sorrow that you experience now because yes he is capable of doing that for you and yes you are designed to receive that comfort from him and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore look at these things that don't exist heaven is as much described by what won't be there than by what will be there here no mourning no crying nor pain it'll just be good all the time for the former things have passed away. 
So we, what we get here is that the resurrected body has like, oh, we get rid of all the former bad stuff and we have just a glorified body. Then with the new heavens and new earth, we get rid of all the bad stuff and we have a glorified better heaven and better earth. But Revelation 21 gives us this one detail that's super important, I think. And it describes the new heavens and earth as heaven meeting earth in the form of the city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven onto the earth. And God's presence is so fully there it will, just, it will then go on to say that you don't even need light because God himself is so present, he just creates light from his presence. The new heaven versus, okay, the current heaven, I'm sort of up with the Lord wherever this location is, and I'm not embodied, but the eternal heaven that you were asking about for, for, the, question, for the first question for today for Christ, Christina is different in that it's like a society and it's actually on the new earth which means there's all the activities of earth. But without any sin, without any wickedness, without any pain, without any sorrow, without any mourning, without crying and tears, just joy, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, but probably a massive variety of eternal activities, but with the manifest presence of God at all times, wonderful unity between the people and great holiness, not only individually, but in the entire culture of the people that are there. This is a different description of heaven than the one that we think of when we compare heaven to an eternal church service in ghost-like form. So I hope that helps. Finally, I'll say this. Um, eternity is not as intimidating as it may seem. Let me just offer a few points on this for those who think like, but eternity, but even if it's the best thing ever, why would I want it forever? Um, as if they will at some point just be like, yeah, I'm just bored with pleasures forevermore. I'm just, I'm just so sick of fullness of joy. Like, I don't think that's going to happen, guys. But there's a few things that might help tamper down your fear of eternity being too long for a good thing to happen. Um, one, eternity is not static, right? It's not a static experience. It seems dynamic. There's going to be activities. There's going to be the ebb and flow of, of daily living and that sort of thing. Uh, what will exactly it look like? I don't know, but it seems that it will be there because the Bible describes a society, a city on a new earth where God is manifestly present, where heaven and earth come together to be one thing and not two separate things. And our, we have these glorified bodies. Um, also, cyclical experiences are nice in life. One of the things that keeps things fresh is that they happen in seasons. And so we have all sorts of cyclical experiences. And heaven will involve uh, but probably quite a lot of those. And I think that helps um, keep things fresh and keep things nice and wonderful. And sometimes, even though you've done things uh, something a hundred times, it's actually more special when you come back around to do that again because it's part of that tradition, that cyclical experience in your life. Also, anyone who has true bliss wouldn't want it to end. Everybody I'd known, and I've known people who have been like, say, very old, and they're like, I just want to die. I just want it to be over. If you improved their quality of life and their um, enjoyment of life, they would never have said that. They only say this because their quality of life and enjoyment in life is so low. Like, that's the only time people say that to my knowledge. I think that when we have fullness of joy, you're not going to be like, I just wish it would end. I can't handle one more wonderful day. Like I, that's not going to happen. Also, you will never actually live. You will live forever, but you will never have lived forever. Let me say that again, and I'll explain. You will live forever if you're if you're in Christ, but you will never have lived forever because infinity or eternity is never a point you reach. It's not like you've been there for twenty billion years, and then one more day goes by, and you go, "I have reached eternity." No, no, you never actually get there. You just have one more day. You just have continuous ongoing experiences that never end. But there's no point at which we hit eternity and go, we've arrived. I've been here for infinity days. 
Like maybe Chuck Norris can pull that off, but he's probably the only one. Um, also, you'll be in an environment you are entirely designed for. From your new created body to the newly created world to the very presence of God and the connection between us, each other, and between God and you personally, that is going to be better than any earthly experiences you've ever had. Because this is without corruption, without any of the wickedness, without any of the bad in you or in the world around you. The rightness of it all will be so constant that, that heaven is, <clears throat> the joys of heaven so far outweigh any of the current suffering that we go through. That Paul the Apostle, who went through incredible suffering, he said that the sufferings of the current time, which he, he, knows, he knows are very intense, he said they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. Think of that, because he had a high estimation of what heaven was going to be like. And finally, I'll say, <clears throat> you might be overly paranoid about this. Um, God made you for heaven. Don't be fretting about, but, but what if, but, but what, but what if, like, eh, you know, you're, you don't, don't be the, the spiritual chihuahua, right? This, <laughs> the chihuahua is like the dog that's like <laughs> spazzing out all the time. It's like they're overly paranoid about life, chihuahuas. They really are. And frequently they cause problems because they're overly paranoid about things. Um, sorry, no offense to you if you're a Chihuahua owner. I think you're a very <clears throat> you're very entitled to go and own whatever Chihuahuas you want. But be honest about your paranoid little Chihuahua. Most likely they're a paranoid little dog. That's just how they are. <laughs> and it's good for you for loving them anyway. Um, all right, let's go to the next question. Question number two. Don't know why I started talking about Chihuahuas. Real husbands love their wives tenderly. How will Isaiah 54.1 be... Oh, by the way, that's the name. I think the YouTube name of the person. Real husbands love their wives tenderly. That must be their, your YouTube name. Okay, so here's the actual question. How will Isaiah 54.1 be fulfilled if there's no marriage in heaven? Um, okay, so here's my challenge answering this question. I'll put Isaiah 54.1 on your screen. I'll read it first. Single barren one who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Um, Isaiah 54, the, the latter parts of Isaiah, I, from my understanding of, of eschatology, and I think a lot of guys in my camp right, who are premillennial, I believe that Jesus will come back bef before a thousand year reign on earth, before then final judgment, and then that's when that new, new heaven and new earth is, is created. Um, so that, that's my, now I don't hold, I hold that loosely because I think in some categories, some areas of doctrine, I don't hold those things really tight. I mean, I believe the word of God really tightly, but I don't necessarily say that I'm fully convinced of my own interpretation of it. This is one of those areas. So Isaiah 54 and this, this whole section of Isaiah, it's difficult to see sometimes whether it's talking about that thousand year reign from my scheme of understanding eschatology. It's difficult to see if it's talking about the thousand-year reign or if it's talking about the eternal state. So, I mean, an easy response could be, oh, single barren one. Oh, he's talking about people having children. The children of the desolate will be more than the children of her. Oh, okay. So this is just talking about the thousand-year reign where there will be lots of children. There you go. I mean, that that could be said. Problem solved. But is it is it actually talking about the thousand-year reign in that section of Isaiah? That I'm less certain of, so I don't know if my answer really helps you um, with great confidence. Um, so, 
Yeah, I'll just offer that as my that would be my my sort of like where I would lean towards interpreting it that way. But I couldn't be 100 percent confident of that because I'm basing this off of some doctrine, some understanding of eschatology that I hold a little bit loosely, even though I think it's accurate. I have a video some of you have seen on eschatology. I'll link it down below in the description after the stream is over when I have a chance. But this video on eschatology is basically like six different views of revelation and end times. And I just explained some of the pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses. And most of these views are acceptable views. Christians can hold these different views and fellowship and not fight about it. One of them is pretty bad. <laughs> but I'll, I'll link that video down below. Uh, you just have to give me a chance after the stream. Major Cajun has a question. I grew up in a King James Version only independent fundamental Baptist church. I have thought about reading the new King James Version, but my conscience feels this is wrong. Does Romans 14 mean I must defer to my conscience in this situation or ones similar? Oh boy, that's a really tough question. Um, so Romans 14, let me just get us all on the same page for everybody who, who may not be familiar with how Romans 14 talks about your conscience. And I actually have a teaching through Romans 14 um, that I've got on my YouTube channel, the whole book of Romans actually, verse by verse. But it talks about conscience and conscience meaning your, that, that sense that you're doing something wrong, whether or not you are. Now, you might be doing something wrong. You might not, right? I can be doing something wrong and not have a conscience about it. I could be doing something totally fine and feel guilty about it. Right? One, one story is um, Pastor Chuck Smith would tell is how he would feel guilty. He would be walking uh, across the church and he'd find a cigarette on the ground and he'd pick up the cigarette and he felt guilty just picking it up because he was just touching it. Well, that shouldn't feel guilty. He's not doing anything wrong there, but that's where his conscience feels bad. So Romans 14 deals with this kind of interplay between what if I feel bad, but I'm, am I really doing something wrong? I don't think it's really wrong, but I feel kind of bad. Let's talk about that. So um, I'll re speed through some of Romans 14 to give us some context. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. This is a commonly misused verse. He's talking about a very specific thing, not in every area of life, you can't pass judgment on issues. You should. You just have to be careful and when and how. Um, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And he's talking about things like meat or different, ki different kinds of food, stuff like that. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Oh, that's interesting. So like, you know, if you take this to your King James Version question, you're like, well, I feel like, I mean, I was raised King James Version only, so I was taught that the New King James was unclean, basically, effectively, spiritually compromised. And so I feel that way. So what do I do about that? Does that mean it is unclean to me? Like I'm actually somehow sinning if I, if I read it. Then it goes on in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, hey, everything's clean, but if your brother is grieved by the things you're eating in front of him, they, well, don't, don't mess him up. Out of love for him, hold back on your liberties. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Like These are secondary issues. Primary issues are righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We don't want to compromise those things. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Indeed, everything, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Ah, so don't, yeah, I have liberty. 
Well, like, you don't have to put your liberty on Instagram for everyone to see. You could just privately have your liberty. So it's a shocker. You don't have to put everything on Instagram. <laughs> um, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble, which means at least in those people's presence, you know, someone who won't drink alcohol, they feel that it's a sin. Well, why would you do it in front of them? Why not just show love for them and not cause division over the topic? That, that's the gracious thing to do. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever is doubts, whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Now, I think that the one, the one condemning him is himself, right? because he's passing judgment on himself in verse 22, and he's condemned in verse 23 because he's condemning himself, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So how would apply this to like, say, drinking? Um, for example, one, this is one of the issues brought up here. Um, let's say that you feel that drinking, you feel that it's wrong. So don't drink. Simple. People around you probably should avoid that so that they don't cause you to stumble. Are you right that all drinking is wrong? No, you're, you're wrong. Biblically speaking, you're actually wrong. Factually speaking, you're actually wrong. Um, so you shouldn't put that burden on anybody else. You shouldn't require it of them. But you should probably avoid it for your own conscience sake. But what do you do when it's the Bible? And you, you've been raised King James Version only. And you're, and you're like, I just want to read New King James. I mean, it's still using the same basic manuscripts, right? I mean, it just changes. It just tries to modernize the language a bit. You know, like, oh. And you've been taught that it's a boogeyman. Um, here, I want to say, is a, is a more challenging aspect. Because there's nothing right or wrong about you drinking or not drinking in and of itself, okay? As long as you don't do it in moderation, you're not abusing alcohol or something like that. But there's nothing wrong, right or wrong about it. But if, if let's say that you're trying to read the King James Bible and you're like struggling to understand, even though they'll, the King James Onlyist will tell you, no, you're not, <laughs> but yeah, you are. So let's say you're struggling and, and you feel like you don't really understand it that well, even you're trying and the language has changed. So you wanna read the New King James Version, but you just feel guilty. I would say this is a, a bit of a different scenario than the one that Paul's talking about in Romans 14. It's not a total parallel issue because while there's nothing morally right or wrong about eating and drinking, it's like, oh, enjoy it or don't under the Lord, it's fine. Either way, just do it under the Lord. But with reading an accessible Bible you can understand that is a good translation is actually a very good thing. So it's not just kind of a take it or leave it issue. It's perhaps like a real spiritual blessing. Then I would encourage you this, Major Cajun, I would suggest... Work on your knowledge, right? Your knowledge of the goodness of other translations other than say King James Version only. Um, I do have a teaching on this topic. You might be familiar with it. I talk about Bible, I will, I'll, I'll share down below after the stream, a playlist of videos that talk about um, the, the, the major issues behind our different translations and then uh, going over a number of translations and at least in my best understanding, how reliable, trustworthy they are. Because I have some of this stuff in my background as well. Not as strong as you do, but some of it. So what I'm going to suggest is um, there's a difference between, I believe the King, the New King James is bad to read, or I don't believe it's bad to read. I just feel weird when I read it. That's a bit of a different scenario, isn't it? Because you could believe it's okay. Like I really do honestly believe it's fine. I just feel awkward and bad. That you will overcome through just probably stepping forward into it. But if in your head you really know there's nothing wrong here. 
But if you really are really struggling, you're like, Mike, you don't understand. This is a deep-seated struggle. I can't grab those other translations. Then I would say do your best to understand the King James Version because you might be putting yourself through more of a headache than it's worth if it really is that intense for you. So I'm trying to cater my answer to your scenario. I pray it gives you wisdom. You don't really have a parallel example of Romans 14, although there's elements in it that apply to your situation. Um, so, I mean, I, I hope that that somewhat helps you out, man. To me, the thing that helps the most is knowledge, right? So Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing's in, unclean in and of itself. How did Paul get convinced of that? He certainly didn't believe that as a religious Pharisee. So th this was different. Something changed. His knowledge was, was changed. So if you can start to impact the knowledge area, start to understand the differences in translations, stop looking at King James' only sources as your only sources, and start considering other sources as well. I know this is considered heresy by some people in those groups, um, but, but they're wrong. And so it, it'd be good for you to grow in your area of knowledge, and then your conscience will follow along in due time. That would be probably the best thing. All right, let's go to question number four. This one, and we have no more questions, by the way. We're full up. Got all 20 questions for today. Thanks, guys, for joining me. I'm glad you take the time to do this. I hope it's a blessing to you. Um, in my view, learning to think biblically about everything involves, um, I just think how it happens in my life, it involves tackling random questions and trying to process them with Scripture. Like, isn't that really most of our thinking biblically that we do? It's just random life stuff, and you go, hmm, Scripture, what does Scripture say about that? And then it helps inform your life and your views and make you biblical and godly, I hope. But it also involves deep dives into understanding a passage, understanding a concept, understanding things very, very thoroughly and very well. And so I try to do both on my channel. Fridays is the random. And that's what we're doing right now. So number four, this question comes from Mark C., who says, did the new covenant officially begin at Jesus' last supper, death, burial, and resurrection, or at his ascension, alluded to in John 20, 17? Let me give you guys one reason why some people debate this issue. Um, they're like, hey, we're in the new, you know, the Bible talks about this new covenant. Okay, God, there's this covenant with Moses and all this, but there's this new covenant coming. And this new covenant is what Jesus inaugurated when he says, this is the cup, this is the cup of the covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus institutes the idea of communion, he does this before he dies. Is that when it begins? Or does it maybe it begins where Jesus actually is on the cross and he dies or at a certain moment where he's on the cross and a certain amount of blood comes out or something? Or maybe it happens when he's buried. Or maybe it happens when he's resurrected. Or maybe happens when the Holy Spirit comes, right, in Acts chapter 2. Or maybe it's in between. But you, you mentioned the ascension and you mentioned John 20, 17, where Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Now, I will just say really quick, I don't see anything in this passage that says, like gives you a proximity of when the new covenant has begun. So you, you mentioned it was alluded to in John 20. I don't see it alluded to here. I would need words in the text that allude to that. Jesus says, I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
Meaning, and when he says don't cling to me, he didn't, you know, some translations say don't touch me. Don't cling to me is actually probably a better translation. It, it, um, Jesus wasn't telling her, you can't touch me at all. Like, I can't be touched. If someone touched Jesus, something bad would happen. That's not the point. Um, he, he tells Thomas, hey, touch my, touch my side. Put your finger in my side. Put your finger in the holes in my hand. So that is not about touching. It's about clinging because Jesus has more of a mission. He's not yet done. He's going to ascend to the Father. But for a season, he's going to be available to the people. So anyway, that's another side issue. But it has nothing to do here with the covenant as far as I can tell. Um, I don't worry too much about the exact timing of the covenant. But there's some people who do. And one of the reasons why they worry is because they're actually trying to figure out if the thief on the cross, the thief on the cross, if this guy was under the old covenant or the new covenant. And so this is where it matters because you'll go, oh, well, you know, it's like in a debate on, on baptism. Is baptism required for salvation? This I had this debate. It was a four-hour ancient de long debate discussion I had with uh, Dean Meadows on the topic on my YouTube channel. I guess I'll link that below as well. So I remember all these things, or maybe Sarah Zimmerman will, my assistant will help me remember to put them in there. Um, but this this issue came up of when was the, when did the covenant begin? And here's the here's how the debate goes. Right? Hey, I'm going to bring me Mike beating the guy who says that baptism is important. Very, very important, but it's not necessary for salvation, even though it normally happens in the life of a, of a, of a believer and is very important. Um, then I say, well, the thief on the cross, he wasn't baptized because he just came to believe in Jesus while on the cross, right? He's mocking him and then he believes in him. And then he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you know, I tell you, you'll be with me this day in paradise. And there's no baptism that takes place. So one of the ways around this for the people who say baptism is required for salvation is, well, some of them will, you don't know he wasn't baptized. Maybe he was baptized. And I'm like, yeah, he's mocking Jesus and he believes in him. Come on, man. <laughs> I think we know. Um, the, um, but the other response would be to say, oh, but he was saved under the old covenant, not the new. And here's why I think this doesn't work. Even if you try to say, oh, because Jesus, he hadn't actually died yet. So his blood hadn't been offered because the blood offering is considered like the death of the animal, not just some amount of their blood being offered. It represents the life of the creature. Life is in the blood. So Jesus' death would seem to be a good candidate for when the covenant began. But here's the problem with this view. This requires us to say that the thief on the cross, he was saved more easily under the old covenant than Christians under the new covenant are saved. Because he just believed in Jesus and had nothing, nothing but faith. No baptism, nothing. But after Jesus' death, some will say, but the new covenant requires baptism. And so after Jesus dies, that same thief, if he had put faith in Jesus on the cross, but it was after the death, now he's not saved. He has to be baptized too. And I'm like, yeah, do you see the problem? We're making things harder than they really are, <laughs> in my view. So I, I have a number of other reasons why I'd support that view that baptism is not required for salvation. I think that is clearly supported in scripture, although baptism is associated with salvation, but it's not necessary. As in, if you believe in Jesus, but haven't been baptized, you are unsaved. That I don't believe is true. So, um, yeah, this is where I say, hey, um, the timing of the new covenant, I don't know for sure. If I had to guess, I would say maybe it's at the very death of Christ because it was, it's, he says, this is the covenant in my blood. 
which is given for you. And it was the blood is establishing the covenant and the blood represents the life of Christ. So his very death would be my guess of the moment. But we see from the thief on the cross that somebody was saved by just believing in Jesus even before that. So really the, the timing of the covenant doesn't change how people get saved from before Christ to after Christ, they get saved the same way through faith alone. They just believe they really truly entrust themselves to Christ you know, or the, or the, or as much revelation as God's given them. Um, that's the same before and after the new covenant though, when it is fully engaged involves also the giving of the spirit, the indwelling of the spirit, these other elements that don't fully come to fruition until like Acts chapter two. And so you could say that the covenant was initiated uh, while Jesus is on the cross. That would be my, my, my summary would be initiated while he's on the cross, but we're seeing its fulfillment and the fruit of it, as far as the filling of the spirit and the indwelling to believers happening, you know, shortly thereafter. Um, there's my, my thoughts on that. I'm sure there's a lot more of debate and there's probably things I haven't considered that it'd be worth considering. Corey Seitz has a question. Does God ever get angry with believers when we sin? If not, why did God get so angry with the Israelites when they sinned? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. So there are some who hold to a view of God where he never really gets angry with anybody because of a philosophical idea about his oneness um, so that God is never experiencing like emotions in that real sense the way that we do like oh i'm so angry not really like that um i don't have that view and so i'm going to answer this question different than than those than the the thomists would <laughs> sorry guys i'm just i, I just want to let you know there's more variety there and and we're, we're all still christians here on the both sides of this topic but um but i think that god did get angry there's another group of people that would say god doesn't get angry for a completely different has nothing to do with philosophy They'll say God didn't get angry because they're really thinking that that anger, ew, you know, like if God gets angry, ew, what's wrong with him? Like God can't get angry. Or, or God got angry at me. Oh, why would he be angry at poor little? God's never going to be angry at me. He's never angry at you. Don't worry. You're wonderful at all times. You are a beautiful and unique uh, butterfly and, and, and you, you are perfectly one. God would never be angry at you. Not even if you murdered a billion people, like he would never be mad at you. Like there, there is this sort of pop Christian or, or weird version of God that people do have where it's like, he could never be angry, but the scripture seems pretty clear that however you understand this, God does get angry at sin. And so if he got angry at people in the old, are we going to suggest he doesn't get angry in the new Testament? Or he won't get angry because we're in, we're in Christ. Let me use an analogy of um, parenthood, and then I'll use an example from Jesus. So, can a father get angry at their children? Rightly, children who he loves, who are his his true children, who he's not disowning, but he's genuinely angry at them for the things that they're doing. That seems reasonable. So, could by analogy God be mad at you? hypothetically be mad at you for what you're doing even though he's not disowning you but he's upset about it that seems reasonable to me i mean unless you say that, that philosophically god just can't feel anger in any any sense that makes sense to a human mind um which i, I don't agree with personally so 
that seems to make sense. Now let me use Jesus as an illustration. Jesus seems like he got irritated at people, even his disciples. Right? He calls, he's like, oh, you have little faith. He seems genuinely disappointed, disappointed in them at times. He's responding to them in real time. Now he's not disowning them, but there's like a genuine response. And I think that this is kind of healthy for us to think this. If you think that God has a permanent smile about everything you do, I think your view of God is a little distorted. It doesn't certainly fit the example of Jesus. When you read in Revelation, the letters to the churches, and Jesus is pretty seriously stern about with several of them, not all of them. Some of them, it's like it's like he's got this these these like um, these like wrinkles of 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 concern about this church, you know, Smyrna or something, you know. And he's got such wonderful things to say about Philadelphia. And then, but Laodicea, he like threatens him, like he's like, "This is going to happen. This bad stuff's going to happen to you if you don't repent." Like it's not like he's smiling. This, you know, this bad stuff's going to happen to you if you don't repent, Laodicea. But I'm not mad at you. I would never be mad. At you. I mean, I get the impulse to want to say that God can never be mad at us, but I think it's mistaken. I think it's like, um, uh, I think I think it's wrong. So, that being said. God can have more than one feeling towards you at a time. I mean, he could he could see the sin you're committing and be upset about it, be in some sense mad or angry in a righteous and perfectly holy and right sense, but also feel compassion and pity towards you at the same time because God can have both of those feelings at the same time just like you can have them towards other people. Oh, I'm so mad you're doing that, but I'm like, my heart's breaking because I don't want to see you. It can, it can be more complicated than that. So I think God can do that as well. And I think that scripture seems to indicate this because Jesus, when he weeps over Jerusalem, he's combination of compassion over the people and frustration with them as well. He's sorrowful over the sad and bad things that are happening, but he's also not holding back the fact that those things are right judgment up upon the people. Um, so that would be my understanding of that. I've tried to give several like you know off the cuff kind of scriptures and ideas that have, would support that. So you ask again, Corey, you said, does God ever get angry with believers when we sin? Um, I think it's entirely possible, but it doesn't mean he disowns us. And if not, why did God get so angry with the Israelites when they sinned? And I would say whenever they sin and God got angry at them, God is so holy and good that when you look in his face and you see anger, you know that he must be mad at something really bad, which means that the thing that they're doing must be really bad. That's a big deal. Anger is not a bad thing. It can be. And it often leads to bad things. But when God does it, it is entirely perfect and pure. I'm sorry if, for those who are watching who feel that you need God to be in constant approval of you, uh, I'll give you one word of caution. If you feel the need for God to continually approve, not just, not just forgive you, but approve of you, because you need God to forgive you, but you do not need him to approve of you. If you feel that need, God, you must constantly approve of me. You must constantly nod in agreement with the things I've done in my life. You must constantly tell me it's no big deal that I've done this and this and this and that I just did what I needed to, that kind of thing. This will completely cripple your ability to let God be God in your life because God is just an approval device and he's not actually God. And that is, that is to say that it might feel good for a season, but in the end, I'm creating a fake version of God. Like I look up at God, but then I hold up this smiling mask and I put it in front of his face so that every time I look, he's just smiling at me. And that wouldn't be accurate. 
Question number six, Fierce Nile Blood Squad says, why is speaking in tongues so common in specific church denominations, but virtually never happens in others? What does this say about other spiritual gifts? Um, okay, so a one size answer may not fit all situations here. Um, like, so let me offer several possibilities. Um, there are perhaps in some churches, people are being taught to speak in tongues, told to speak in tongues. They're, it's being emphasized more. Um, and that, that can create legitimate speaking in tongues and illegitimate speaking in tongues. And I think I can give you an example from Scripture. Paul in 1 Corinthians encourages the people to prophesy. He says, desire to prophesy. Isn't that strange? Desire to prophesy because he's implying that if they are intentional and trying to and engaging in praying for that, that it's more likely to happen. So it might be that the churches that are engaged, that are like being deliberate about the idea of tongues in their life and the Christians who are being more deliberate about tongues, that that might just be in causing that to happen more in a very genuine sense. I think that's possible. But it's also possible that it's creating a culture where you feel pressure to do it, even to the point of faking it. And I think that also happens in many of the same churches where tongues is emphasized. There's a very low standard for whether it's real or not. Just like in some churches, some charismatic churches where prophecy is emphasized, which is not a bad thing, but there is a low standard for whether that prophecy is even real or not. I mean, I've seen churches like, say, Bethel, who's hugely influential in the world, so I'm, I'm going to speak to them because they're spitting out public teachings about prophecy, and where they've made it clear that they're, they're not concerned with whether the prophecy is really from God or not. They just want you to do it anyway. And I'm like, this is not healthy, you know, so that's, that's, that's a bad thing. Um, it could also just be the work of the Spirit is different in different communities. Why not? Um, I, I'm open to that idea that the Holy Spirit is just working different in different communities. Also, the people, if you speak in tongues and you're in an environment who, that where there's cessationists in your church, you're not going to tell people about it. <laughs> you're probably going to keep it to yourself. And understandably, why, why would you cause the unnecessary division over it? I'll just keep it to myself. So it's possible that there's less real tongues going on in the Pentecostal churches than they say. And there's possible there's more real tongues going on in cessationist groups than they say. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Those are a few of the elements, though. Um, you said, what does this say about other spiritual gifts? I think that, um, I don't I don't know what it says much about them. I would just hesitate to judge whether spiritual gifts are valid or not based upon people who seem to clearly be abusing them. That's a really important principle because the most tempting reason I would have to be cessationist, ones who believe that the gifts of the Spirit have basically ceased, as being active in the church, things like prophecy and and, and tongues and things like that. Um, one of the biggest temptations I have for moving into that, that camp theologically isn't scripture because scripture seems to give me the opposite indication that these things are not over. I don't think that they have to be as constant and pushed as much as many charismatics do, but I think that they're legit and valid and I'd like to see more. And I do sometimes just pray for more prophecy that the Lord would just keep stirring that up in me and in the church. And I think that's a healthy thing to do. But the thing that tempts me, not scripture, to move over into that campus cessation is the abuse of the gifts that I've seen so much, especially not in local churches where I'm actually part of the group, but in these like internet stuff, 
right? The, the stuff you see that just gets spread around in Facebook groups and on the internet and you see little clips of it on Instagram or something. And you're like, oh man, what's that? That's horrible. Or I watch some of the stuff coming out of, I hate to say it guys, like Nigeria, where there's a lot of like crazy stuff that at least, I'm not saying all Nigerians are like this, but it seems like it gets exported online. For some reason, there's like this high export amount of weird, weird spiritual abuse, um, hyper, hyper charismatic craziness that you see. And that stuff would tempt you to throw it all out, the baby with the bathwater. But if I start with scripture and I let that establish my perspectives on gifts, and then I analyze these abuses, I see them for what they are, abuses, not examples that would confirm that the gifts aren't really happening or something like that. Number seven, let's go to Currentino. Uh, Currentino says, greetings from Norway. Well, greetings, ma'am or sir. Uh, does Ephesians 2.15 contradict Matthew 5.17? In Matthew, Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law, but it looks like Paul in Ephesians says the opposite. God bless. All right, let's check this out. Oh, what will we do with these two passages? Ephesians, oh, I'm sorry, let's start with Jesus. So Matthew to, actually, we'll start with Ephesians. <laughs> Sorry, I changed my mind. I was thinking about it. Okay. By abolishing the law, this is speaking of Jesus. Jesus, according to Paul here, abolished the law. So, um, <clears throat> now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The two, people always miss this, the two in Ephesians chapter 2 are Jews and Gentiles. They're made into one man, united in Christ. The, the middle wall is actually a description of a physical wall that was separating the Gentiles from the Jewish areas of the temple. And God has abolished the separation that, that the law created. Isn't that interesting? So we're one, we're united in Christ without having to go and observe the law. Paul dealt very consistently with groups of um, Jews from Jerusalem in particular who were telling Gentiles that they had to get circumcised and obey all the Old Testament laws if they were going to be saved. So his context is Jews telling Gentiles they have to do the laws in order to be Christians, in order to follow Jesus truly. And he says, no, 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 no. Jesus has abolished that, the requirements of the law so far as it comes to um, dealing with that. The way he did it was through his body dying on the cross, fulfilling the law. Paul's also really consistent with that. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Now, someone would say, well, that's a contradiction. And I don't remember the Greek right now, so I won't try to comment on it. But um, they go, well, look, the word abolish is right there. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. So one of them has got to be wrong. Or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Then he says something interesting, um, right? Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, nor, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Right? Jesus says, I have come to, if you take away the word abolish for a second, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. 
So Jesus is making a distinction here that Paul leans on later, even though they both use the word abolish, but it's in different contexts. Jesus is saying effectively, I think, I am not here to say there's something wrong with the law, to do away with the law, and he's talking to an entirely Jewish audience. Not Gentiles, about whether they'll have to obey the law to be saved. It's a completely separate issue that hasn't even been addressed yet. Jesus talking to a total Jewish audience. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Well, what happens to the law after it has been fulfilled? That's where Paul is. Hey, you guys come to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, if you have faith in Jesus, you've fulfilled the law. So the law is no longer, it's abolished as a separator, as a barrier between Jew and Gentile so we can have fellowship together. They're both saying the same thing. They're in agreement. The difficult part is they're both using the word abolish in reference to the law, but in different contexts. Hey, Jews, I'm not here to destroy the law. But hey, if you're going to, after Jesus fulfills it, if you're going to tell Gentiles that they have to do the law to get saved, do the law and obey it all and get circumcised, then you're denying what Jesus did, which was fulfill the law. I, I hope I was clear there. I feel like I could have explained that better, but... But we got to move quick because I'm taking too long on these questions. David Dufty says, hey, Mike, thanks for all you do. When you're very welcome, David. Sorry, I'm like on mission. I'm reading your question. Which Bible passage do you think should shape how we think about gun laws, gun violence, gun usage? Are there any passages that are misused in this debate? Well, to me, this debate is complicated because, um, because I feel like two sides come at it from such different angles. It's as though one side... Um, say the, the Second Amendment and the gun rights side, they're thinking about government atrocities and self-defense. And um, so when you talk about gun laws, they, they're literally thinking like, you're trying to say I shouldn't be able to defend myself and we should all be, you know, and, and just in the last hundred years, there have been massive, 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 horrible government atrocities that have been committed that would be hard to do if the populace was armed. But then on the other side, you have people when they say gun laws, all they're thinking is school shootings, mass shootings, um, um, crazy hillbillies with with M16s, and like that's all they're thinking about. And so, and not that now those things exist. Right? Those things are a big deal and they really matter. I, I'm gonna say, but this side will hardly ever really address those issues, at least not as much. And this side will hardly ever really address those issues. And so they just keep talking past each other. So when I answer questions on, say, like I try to answer a gun law question as it comes to the Bible, they're going to filter it through their own little, like, focus. Which means that nobody's really hearing what I'm saying. They're just, it, it's, it's, everybody is so loaded with the talking points of their own sides that nobody's, in my opinion, nobody's really thinking clearly about this and having a calm discussion. I've tried having calm discussions with people about gun laws because I'm not really super obsessed with the topic. So... I just ask them questions and every time people start to get passionate and they start to, and eventually they just default to talking points, but, 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 but talking point and you're not actually talking anymore. And so th this is why answering this kind of question, I'm like, hey, no matter what I say, people are just going to, they're just going to absorb it into their talking points and then not really hear me. That being said, okay, that'll happen. I'm just, I accept it. Um, what do I think about my, at least my current thinking, which may change over time, fine. Possibly. Which Bible passages might shape what I think about gun laws, gun violence, and gun usage? Okay, well, first there's a question of guns don't exist in the Bible, right? So we just have to look at usage of weapons or usage of violence in the Bible. And it's very difficult to make a case that 
there should be no usage of violence at all. It's, it's, in, it's in fact impossible. Like I don't understand how you can be Christian and genuinely totally pacifist. You might be more of a pacifist, or I should say, I mean, you either are or aren't a pacifist, but you may be um, much less violent and you may have high standards for when you become violent, but it seems to me that based on what I read in scripture, violence is not inherently always wrong. And at some points, it's actually a proper thing to do. So um, some examples of this would be Romans 13 talks about, the. this is one that shapes my, my thought of government, that the government is armed and the government's messengers, like say our modern equivalent of this would be like the police or the military, are are put in place that they might actually enforce these laws. So one of them is say you don't murder or you get the death penalty. That would be a biblical principle. Um, not necessarily one that is fits many of the laws of the countries that we live in. But, um, but Romans 13 is one of those passages. Okay, there's a proper use of violence. Um, but government can abuse these things. The Bible is very clear on that too. There's lots of examples of the abuse going on. But the standard is still there that there should be a proper in a proper empowerment of government to enforce laws, um, even though they may abuse them. What about arming the people? I mean, well, we do have a passage in in the book of Esther, which is interesting, where Malachi, uh, uh, is it Malachi? Um, Mordecai. Mordecai. Um, so Esther's relative, uh, Mordecai, and her are Jews in who are kind of like, they've got their foot into the kingdom, so to speak. I'm going to give you the short version of this story. And the Jews are about to be eradicated nationally. Like, like there's a log, they're, they're all being held captive in a foreign land. And there's a law going out where the people for a certain day, they just have free for all. They could, they could kill and steal from the Jews because one of the guys, Haman, just hates the Jews. And so he's made these laws for this purpose. And the solution to the salvation of the people is that another law gets passed where they're allowed to arm themselves first to defend themselves against this onslaught. And so, I mean, it's hard to argue that that's not like a case for a general good of having the ability to defend yourself. Like, it's hard to argue against that. But then we have Jesus who gives us like two sides of the coin. And this is a challenge and I'm not, I'm not 100% settled on how I process this. Jesus says two things to his disciples. One of them is he tells them to take up a sword if they don't have one. In the Gospels, this is right before the garden where Jesus is betrayed by Judas and they come basically like with pitchforks and, and torches. This, this is my Frankenstein movie version of it, right? And they come to take Jesus away, but they're armed and there's a number of men and they're there to take him away in, and ready to fight to do it. Jesus tells his disciples before this event happens to get a weapon. This is totally shocking to people who think Jesus had to have been a total pacifist in all ways. And so some people try to spin this in weird ways that I'm like, well, he he was really saying the opposite of exactly what it sounds like he was saying. It was a really clever little sarcasm thing. And it's like, I don't think so. I think Jesus was telling the disciples like to arm themselves because this moment was coming that was very dangerous for them all. But he said a second thing. When they get there, to take Jesus away, Peter's got a sword. Why? Because Jesus told him to bring one. So he's got a sword and they go to take Jesus away and Peter pulls out the sword and he swings and hacks at the servant of the high priest and hacks off a piece of his ear, like cuts his ear. And Jesus, he stops Peter. 
He puts the ear and heals the guy, fixes it, and then he tells Peter that whoever picks up the sword is going to die by the sword, which it's now a debate is, does Jesus mean every human who picks up a weapon will then die by a weapon? Or does he mean right now, Peter, if you start this fight, everyone who fights will be dead? Was it about that or was it about this like this like life lesson about all of life? Um, so how do you balance this? Why does Jesus tell him to take up a sword and then not use it to defend him? My theory, my best understanding of this, and I'm open to changing my mind, is that Jesus wanted them to have enough self-defense to avoid them from being overly and uh, abused and, and killed and even taken captive in that moment but not for them to use it offensively, but for them to use it just to simply be present. They have a sword and then it stops the fight. This is a really interesting thing, but it seems to be the best explanation of what Jesus is doing there. That's at least my understanding of it. But I think that someone who's going to talk about weapons needs to reconcile Jesus's two statements about telling his own disciples to take up weapons, but then not letting them use them to defend him as he goes on towards martyrdom. So I think perhaps there's a proper place for self-defense lesson, Right, But, and I think there is a proper place for self-defense, but when it comes to God's calling you to go forward into even suffering for his namesake, you don't just always respond with violence. You maybe just walk forward and you face it and you go through the pain. Um, or you also can run away. More often than not, you run away, but there's a time to, to go forward. I think that as, um, as a general rule, and, and I think I'd like more scripture to support this point, but the idea of, let's say that me as a man, uh, my, my house is being broken into um, and, and my family's in danger and I refuse to take up an, a weapon to protect them. I think that I'm actually shirking an, an important duty of mine because protecting, how is it that we can call a, you know, a husband to provide for family but not to protect his family? That, that doesn't make any sense. So yeah, turn the other cheek doesn't mean total pacifism. Uh, it does mean you don't respond in kind instantly to everybody who insults, you know, insults you necessarily. But if they're trying to kill you, that can change your response. I say all this to say I want to dig deeper on this topic at some point, and I will in the future. Actually, I, I do plan on digging way into the de the details of Christian pacifism and like the the um, Anabaptist movement and their views on pacifism. In the future and then i'll have more to say on it there's a few passages that give you some things to think about and i'm talking too long so we'll go to the next question don miguelio says why wasn't evangelism a focus in the old covenant how were gentiles far away from israel supposed to learn about yahweh and what opportunities for salvation did they have um well they had a few um so evangelism was an intended focus for israel because god says they were supposed to be a light to the world but the way this light to the world thing happened through Israel was not by people becoming part of Israel, but by them seeing Israel and recognizing that the God of Israel is the true God, putting away their idols and worshiping the God of Israel. But they stayed Gentiles. They didn't become Jewish. An example of this is Naaman, the Syrian, who he comes and he sees Elisha and meets with him. Well, he doesn't even meet with him, actually. He meets with his servant and he's got leprosy and he's gone everywhere for healing. He hasn't gotten it. And so finally he goes to Elisha and he gets his healing and long, long story, very short. He gets his healing and realizes, oh, wow, the God of Israel is the true God. And he decides he will worship the God of Israel. I think he went away saved, even though he never became Jewish. 
he still went back to his town. He didn't he didn't become Jewish, but he was worshiping the God of Israel, putting away his idolatry. So I think that that was the conversion of a Gentile in the ancient times. And Israel was supposed to stand as a beacon of God's blessings, showing the true God that 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 you know God is the true God. Um, Israel didn't do that so good <laughs> because it it involved them walking in obedience to God so that they could be a light. So how else did God do these things? Well, the creation declares the glory of God. Even apart from Israel, God is testifying to the world that he exists, who he is. Romans 1 talks about this, Psalm 19, that men are without excuse because through the very things they see around them, God's nature is perceived. There's a God who designed that. There's a God who made that. And there's moral awareness in my heart because there's because God is morally good. And so you're aware of God's existence naturally. Now this can be um, altered and and you can lose this and you can become have a depraved mind and all this sort of thing. But what I'm suggesting is that there's a type of evangelism that all of creation has been doing for people. Um, I, an example of this would be a friend of mine who was in the Navy. He was he was into Indian, um, excuse me, Native American religious stuff, right? So uh, the Nez Perce tribe up in Canada was, I think, the one that he identified with, right? And he was very much into this Native American uh, religious perspectives. And that was kind of his religion. Um, it was it was strange. <laughs> and so he um, he had heard some of this Christian stuff, but what actually radically changed his life is he was in the Navy and he went out onto the deck of the ship and he was on watch one night. And there with like no light except the stars, he looked up and he saw the stars and he just went, there's a God. And it was like he just knew all that Ms. Pierce, like religious stuff was wrong. And there's just the God who made all this. And he bowed his life to Christ at that moment. Um, and it was clumsy and it was probably incomplete as far as his theology and all that, of course. But what I'm suggesting is that creation is declaring the glory of God. There's people who've been saved because they went on a walk. <laughs> and out there they saw creation and creation was evangelizing them. Now, is that... Um, the the entirety of the gospel? No, but I think that God will meet people with the partial knowledge they have. And um, I have a video on that too. I'll link it below afterwards. It's about what about those who've never heard the gospel? So I'm suggesting Israel was a light without having to turn people into Jews and that God has been shining light through other things as well, both internally, our moral awareness and externally, the creation declaring God's glory. Um, okay, anonymous question. This is... Is inner healing prayer, and that's in quotes, inner healing prayer, as a form of trauma relief, biblical? This practice involves a prayer leader asking the patient to picture vivid images and hear direct statements from Jesus. Thanks. Um, is it strictly biblical in the sense of, do we have biblical examples or teachings that we should do this kind of prayer, that I should um, you know, have someone guide me through picturing vivid images in my head and then trying to hear direct statements from Jesus. Is that is that either exampled or taught in Scripture? And the answer is no, it's not. I don't know of anywhere in Scripture where this is taught. So where did it come from? I think what happens, and this is a lot of deliverance-type ministries do this. Um, well, they do one of two things. But, but one of the things that they do is they're trying to come up with formulas for how to bring people deliverance. And so one day someone tries this. They're like, I'll try this. Hey, I want you to picture this scene in your head. 
And I want you to imagine, what would Jesus be telling you right now? And the person says something really profound or really nice. Maybe it came from Jesus. Maybe it didn't. But it really helped. So they go, hmm, that really helped. Let's try that again. And they try it again with somebody else. And then they refine it. And they try to come up with a formula of how to do it. And then they try to find scripture to support it. I don't think that these types of formulas are very healthy for us. Um, I think that they can help in individual situations, but these people will only gather the situations where it helps and they will ignore the situations where it doesn't. And then they will pass over the times where you gave somebody this weird impression that they could just close their eyes, imagine a stream and hear from Jesus. And five years later, they think they're hearing from Jesus, but it's just whatever ideas that they have that they think are good. This can be dangerous, this kind of thing. So um, I don't think it's biblical. I think it's potentially problematic. And therefore, I would never make a routine out of it. Not that I would tell someone you can never do this. But do you even, let me, here, here's an example of why this might be reckless. Do you have anything in place to confirm whether you're hearing from Jesus or if you're just saying things to yourself that you think Jesus might say? An example, this is uh, Bill Johnson, okay, from, from Bethel. He, he tells a story how he had a, his, a group of his leaders together. He wanted to create revival and the sense of God speaking to people in his church. And so he gathered the leaders together and he went around the table and he said to them, catch how this was done. And I have this, I have video footage of him saying this. It's actually in my review on, I think on Bill Johnson. Um, so he says to them, if Jesus was here, what do you think he would say? And then this guy literally makes something up that he thinks Jesus, that might feel like the kind of thing Jesus might say. Then he goes to the next one. What do you think Jesus would say? And he goes around the room and he asks them all, what do you think Jesus would say if he was here right now? Then he tells them all when they're done, he goes, you just prophesied. This is a formula for dangerous stuff. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's a problem. You can't just channel your inner Jesus because you don't have one. Jesus speaks when he wants to, not when I imagine him speaking. This is very dangerous. All right, number 11. Um, Dylan Wyke says, can we only use Jesus's words and not the rest of the Bible? Why does Jesus teach? Oh, does Jesus teach against homosexuality? My friend claims that he isn't against it and she doesn't consider Paul's letters authoritative. So your, your friend is part of a minority movement of individuals who um, say such interesting things. Can we only use Jesus's words and not the rest of the Bible? Uh, no. And the reason why is because Jesus's words will push you to the rest of the Bible. Jesus says things like, I've come to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus says things like, the whole of the scriptures were written about me. Jesus says things like, the scripture cannot be broken. So if you get Jesus and you trust his words, his words tell you about the rest of the Bible. That's kind of a big deal. Um, then you have Jesus who commissions Peter, right? Be my sheep. He commissions Peter and the other disciples. Now she might say, well, you didn't do Paul. But Peter says that Paul is an apostle, calls Peter, Paul's writing scripture. Peter does this. Peter, who, can, who Jesus approves of. He writes that Paul's writings are scripture. So what this means is that once you get Jesus in as your sort of central uh, doctrinal you know, anchor, he pulls in the rest of the scripture, Old and New Testament, and he says, all of this is true. You can't pretend to only listen to Jesus 
because Jesus, if you only listen to him, would make you listen to the rest of the Bible too. That's the inevitable result of that. So this is like a game someone's playing. Um, then the second part, it, they reveal their hand when they ask a question like, why didn't Jesus say homosexuality was wrong? Like he never mentioned this. And that is um, understandable. Okay, like I get it. But it's very historically and biblically unaware. Um, Jesus doesn't specifically speak about homosexuality for the same reason that Jesus didn't talk about um, like X-rated movies. Right? It wasn't relevant to his audience. Jesus' audience is entirely Jewish. Paul's audience is mostly Gentile. In the Jewish environment, they were 1,000% convinced that homosexuality was a sin all the time in every case. Why? Because that Old Testament that Jesus approves of clearly states that it is. Clearly states that it is. In spite of whatever recent movies are coming out trying to pretend that that's not the case. I have a series on homosexuality. I highly encourage you guys to check it out. I'm not just making wild claims. Like I've looked at the original language. I've looked at the claims that have come from people like Matthew Vines who try to reinterpret the Bible. And my series on homosexuality goes through this in great detail. The, the, New, the Old Testament clearly indicates that all homosexual behavior is, is, is wrong. I don't mean that all people who are homosexual are automatically condemned, right? Because, because what they're saying is I'm tempted with this sin. Like that doesn't mean you're condemned. You... You know, there's plenty of Christians that are tempted with those sins. It doesn't make you less of a human or less of uh, less chance of being saved or something like that. So, Jesus is in an environment where everyone already believes this thing is wrong. So why does he? Why would he teach on it? He doesn't mention it. If Jesus wanted to say homosexuality was okay, he would have had to come out and say it. Otherwise, everyone in his, in his community and culture knows it's already wrong. You get what I mean? His silence here is important. His silence implies that there's nothing to change, but it's more than that. His approval of the Old Testament in general is absolutely affirmation that he is opposed to homosexuality. Like that's 100% confirmation. In addition to this, we have Paul. When, when, uh, so let me, before I get to Paul, let me just say, when Jesus goes to the Pharisees, he brings up issues that seem irrelevant to you today. Pharisees, you make your phylacteries all big and you make these big prayers in front of others and you enlarge the borders of your garments. Like nobody's doing this today. But it was relevant to his audience. So he tackles the issues they're struggling with and shows them right and wrong in the midst of those issues they're dealing with. Paul does the same thing, but he has a different audience. So in Romans, when Paul in Romans 1 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he talks about homosexuality, it's because he's going to Gentiles who don't have the moral compass that the Jews have. And so with them, he makes it very clear. It's absolutely immoral. It's definitely wrong. God is commanding you to repent of these things. He even says that in the church comprised many people who were formerly engaging in homosexual acts. All this is 100% consistent. But when you try to take a pair of scissors and you try to cut Jesus out of the Bible, he will be reaching out with both arms to grab the Bible and bring it back in. So you don't, if, if you want Jesus without the Bible, you end up getting neither. But you're claiming to have the authority of Jesus to affirm a sin that you were just committed to above your commitment to Jesus. That's the, that's the sad, sad bottom line. What do you say to a friend like this? You, you share the things that I've said and you hope that they will listen. And you hope that they will listen. Um, they are, there's, there's an agenda that is driving them to reject massive amounts of scripture and reimagine a new version of Jesus that affirms a lifestyle of sin that Jesus would never, ever have affirmed. Number 12, 
Zamak one says, I sincerely believe Jesus as my savior, but if my sincerity can't be trusted, just like the rich young rulers, how can I truly 100% know that I actually do have a saving faith in Jesus Christ? Um, so there's a danger in asking to 100% know anything. What if you 99.9999% know that you believe in and you trust in and you genuinely believe in Jesus? What if you 99.9999% know that? Does that mean, let's be rational now, you should have zero confidence that you're really a Christian? No. <laughs> but that's how a lot of people feel. They're like, I'm 92% certain that I'm a real believer. So my confidence level is at 2%. <laughs> you're like, what? What's going on here is, is some sort of psychological confidence that does not equal your rational confidence. Um, I'm, I'm going to suggest that you, you look at, do I genuinely believe in Jesus? Far as I know, I do. That's good enough. How about this? Next question. Does my life look like I really believe in Jesus? Pretty much it seems like it does. I mean, I, I still have sin I struggle with, but, but my life looks like I really do believe in Jesus. Like this seems genuine. Then you should probably have pretty good confidence you're in Christ. But it's not 99.9999999%. Don't worry about it. Total certainty on a psychological level is like almost never going to happen. Um, if I talked for many of, the, of you in the audience, you, you'll get if, what kind of person you are when I explain this. If I was to say to you guys, there's going to be an earthquake in 12 seconds. Now, you know, rationally, it's not reasonable to think there will be just because I said it. But some of you are like worried. You're counting the seconds right now. Three, two, one. Uh, nothing happened. I created the psychological uncertainty in you out of nothing. That's because our psychological certainty is not like I'm trying your weak people. No, no. You just need to learn to not trust that because that psychology of the person, how I feel confident about potential dangers is not always reasonable. So I'm just suggesting this. Just trust Jesus. Don't trust in your, in your percentage of trust. <laughs> just trust Jesus. And if your life looks like you're a follower of Christ, then you probably really are. It seems that simple. And if it looks like, dude, it does not look like you mean this at all, then maybe you really don't. That's when you challenge your sincerity. That's when you say, sure looks like I don't really mean it. Then maybe you don't. What's the solution? Give up, cry, and, and go to the strip club? No. The solution is to mean it and let and, and then bear the fruit, the, the, the fruit of repentance, the works that demonstrate that that was genuine. I, I hope that helps you. I, I know this is a challenging issue. I, I just hope that somehow my words made a difference for you. Dangeroso says, in Matthew 24, 42, Jesus warns believers to be ready for a second coming. Does this point to a partial rapture of only those actively practicing their faith with others having to endure tribulation? Matthew 24, 42. Um, this topic is not fresh in my mind at all, but let's read it. Jesus here says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Um, 
if we back up a little bit, Matthew 24 is like this sort of um, in times discussion of Jesus. He's talking about various things in times related. Um, gosh, I'd have to read so much to give you full context. Um, here's what I'm going to suggest. Uh, I do talk about this passage, I believe, in my series in the Gospel of Mark, where I go through the abomination of desolation and then the following study after that. So in the Mark series, I will link those down below. I'm linking lots of stuff today. I will link those two videos. I think it's two videos, or I'll link whatever's relevant. Where I talk about this in great detail, I walk through these issues. So here he's talking about, though, this, the second coming. So um, he talks about the abomination of desolation. First, he talks about like the um, uh, things like the destruction of the temple, but then he moves on to talking about the second coming of Christ. So Jesus is like, hey, when you see this particular event, the abomination of desolation, then it's on, like the timing is, is coming. And um, then when the Christ comes, everyone will see it. So don't listen to anyone who says, oh, Jesus came back, he's over here. No, no, everyone will see it. You don't need anyone to tell you. And then you trying to think how to give you enough context for this passage. Um, I would recommend reading through it all. Um, there's, then there's going to be a tribulation that's going to be happening. Difficulties go on. Then then, right, immediately after those days, there's tribulation. Then, seemingly after tribulation, there will appear the in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, right? And then they'll see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. So if, you're, if you were to take the timing of this description of the coming of Jesus, this description is sometime after a tribulation time of a, a very bad season of, like, judgment coming down upon the land. Um and then so, he, but he says, yeah, but you don't really know when this is all going to be going down. So you just need to be ready for Jesus to come and therefore stay awake, spiritually speaking, right? Stay awake, spiritually speaking, because you don't really know when all these things are going to take place. Your question was, does this point to a partial rapture of only those actively practicing their faith while others have to endure tribulation? Um, I don't think so. I don't see anything in there that talks about it being partial rapture i'd have to have more verses specifically that would support that and and i yeah i yeah there, there, there's a lot more that should be said about this i apologize i don't have more to say about it right now all right um, but i will link below some of these issues on this passage and the related passage in mark and luke that i dealt with in a lot of detail when i went through my series through the gospel of mark i'll link those videos down below and that will give you some more answers too Okay, this anonymous question, number 14. I work in a warehouse handling every item imaginable. How should I handle satanic slash magic items? Should I refuse to handle such things? Oh, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, the easy answer, and a lot of people will tell you this, is like, oh, of course not. Dare, don't do dare handle those things. And um, we're going to have to say, like, let's look at the consequences of telling your employer that you will not ship certain items. You will not handle or, or package or, or put out certain items. You are telling the employer that you will not do that job, and they probably need to find someone else for it. So you're probably going to end up unemployed. Um, does that mean you should you should therefore just give in and do whatever? Well, no, that's not true. You should you be unemployed for Jesus, and you do it. But it should give us pause to ask the question of what is the right thing to do here? 
I'm just moving things from one place to another. Do Am I morally responsible if somebody orders something and it's something uh, satanic? It's like, it's like a, let's say it's a satanic book. You know, some Anton LaVey's satanic book of Satan stuff. And so they order that and your job is to take it and move it from there to there. And you're like, I feel like I'm aiding in some ungodly behaviors by doing this. What do you do? I don't know. I don't feel confident telling you that it's okay for you to continue doing it, but I also don't feel confident telling you that you should like put your entire job on the on the line because my confidence level about the answer to this question is just so flimsy. I don't know. What would you guys recommend for Dangeroso, no, for uh, anonymous person here, number 14? <laughs> yeah. Um, how should he handle satanic or magic items? Should he refuse to handle such things or she? I just honestly, I just need to sit and think about this and ask you more questions about your job. How do you handle that? Let me make it more complicated for you guys so you understand some of the complexities here. Right? We Let's say that you work at a, a, at a job and um, you're a food server and you know that the owner is highly religious and they, off, they make offerings to idols and they offer a sample of all the food to an idol before you take the food out to the table. So you feel like you're serving idolatry-related food to everybody. They don't know it's idol-related, but you might... Can you still serve that food? You're handling it? Yeah, but an idol is nothing. Oh, the satanic book is nothing. It doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't actually mean anything. It's just nonsense. It's just, it's just lies. But if I can't handle the spiritual satanic book, like, can I handle, like, let's say you work at Barnes & Noble, can you handle a book that's just written by an atheist that's written to convince people of atheism? Can you restock that on the shelf when it's out? Gosh, that's an interesting question. If you're working at a 7-Eleven, can you put a Sports Illustrated magazine up, the swimsuit edition? Or do you put that up? Or do you say, I can't even touch that? What I'm suggesting here is that I don't really know exactly how to handle all these issues. And I think that they're all related. And how we answer one affects how we answer the others. And I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. I, I, I apologize for saying this, but God give you wisdom. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what my answer would be. And I would hate to mislead you. It would be an insult or harm to you to give you advice on issues that I'm not quite sure how to advise. Uh, Richard Walter says, my niece wants to be male, though she was born female. She gets upset she's not referred to as her, uh, she gets upset she's not referred to as male. I've been just avoiding any conversation at all with her so as not to compromise. Any advice? Richard, I've struggled with this too, like a lot of people. Um, Part of me wants to say, like, oh, just call her whatever she wants. You know, just you're just trying to build a bridge with her. You know, she's not a believer. You don't really expect all that stuff of her, um, assuming she's not. But another part of me says, you know, if 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 we don't confront truth, we're losing truth societally. There's a there's a way in which this is a systemic problem in a genuine sense, and our society is losing reality, and it's doing so to great peril and harm far more than any of them are realizing um, who are falling into these things. And so that makes me feel a little bit more like I wouldn't go out of my way to use proper pronouns just to make a point, but I wouldn't stop using them because that would be a compromise of reality and truth. 
And if I love this person, maybe I should be doing it. Anyway, I'm just saying I lean on the side of continuing to use the correct pronouns, though not excessively as if I'm doing it to make a point, but just because that is reality. I do lean on that side. And I think that a lot of us are leaning on the other side purely because of the reactions. Um, I won't use those the proper pronoun, the right, accurate, and true pronoun. Right? Male and female mean something. They refer to objective realities, not just how you feel about yourself. And so I'm not going to mix those definitions because that is too... Um, the purpose of mixing the definition of how I feel about myself into the objective reality of male-female, the purpose of that is to pretend that how I feel about myself is the objective reality. And that's a lie that is not helpful for anybody. Anybody. But the reason why many would lean that way would be because of the reactions. But if I don't do this, if I don't bow to this lie, they're going to flip out. And, and they'll even say things like, you're responsible for the suicides. You're literally, by saying that a man is male and a woman is female, you are literally responsible for people killing themselves. This is, this is the, the, how did we get there? By people being worried about the reactions. And so I, I don't believe those things are true. Um, I'm, I'm more and more leaning towards thinking like, ah, I feel like I need to just be honest and tell the truth here. And um, I can see a third option, which is avoiding using pronouns, which you can do in a lot of cases. You can avoid using pronouns, not because you're trying to make a point, because uh, you're, you're, not, you're not supporting their beliefs by avoiding the use of a pronoun, actually. You're not. You're avoiding a touchy, inflammatory moment that would hinder the relationship in a way that you think would be unhealthy at that time, and there may be wisdom in doing that. But to me, the option of actually using wrong pronouns in order to support false beliefs to avoid overreactions seems to me like I'm being bullied into lying in ways that hurt people. And I, I don't, I, I have a hard time seeing it in a different way. Um, I want to have all the compassion in the world towards someone who's going through a, a type of um, gender uh, dysphoria where they just, they don't, they're thinking wrongly about these issues and it's really important to them. It's really messing them up. I want to have all the compassion in the world to them, but I don't see how that compassion means I support the lie that is hurting them. I think the friendliest person you have when you're thinking of trying to change your gender or at least pretend to be a different gender than you are, I think the friendliest person is the one who's trying to stop you from heading down the road of affirming a lie as a solution to the way you're feeling. And many who are detransitioned will will affirm will say that as well. And you don't hear about them in the news, the detransitioned people who are like the doctors, all these people supported me, they just kind of fed me into this direction and helps support me into this deception and now I'm suffering and paying the price. I, I now realize I was just wrong. Like I've always been a woman or I've always been a man and everything I did in the meantime was just destructive and harmful and psychologically damaging. And was I the one pushing them towards that or pulling them away from it? Number 16, Forrest L Lewenberger. Forrest Lewenberger says, good afternoon, Pastor Mike. Well, good afternoon. Can you explain spiritual death as referenced in passages such as Colossians 2.13, Ephesians 2 and 5.18, and what part it plays in the process of salvation. Colossians 2.13, 
we're, we're, we're running a bit over on at least my intended time for the Q&A, so forgive me if I move quickly, um, which I threaten to do and then I don't do anyway. <laughs> so just ignore me. Um, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Um, you said spiritual death, but it doesn't actually say spiritual death there, does it? So I, I and I just want to be clear. I, I don't want to add a term spiritual death to where the text doesn't say it because I just feel like I might be bringing in baggage or extra meaning that isn't intended, right? You were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. What did that mean? You, you, you were dead in your trespasses. My spirit was dead and it had to be brought back to life. Well, that's adding more to it than what's there. Um, death does seem to include the idea of separation. That's a really consistent idea. Death involves a type of separation between something and something else, like you and God, right? Us and, and the world of we call the living, right? Um, but I just don't want to add to it too much. So Ephesians 2, let's look at Ephesians 5.18. That's talking about the state of everybody who's unsaved. They're dead in their trespasses. Then we have Ephesians 5.18. It says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but we fill with the Spirit. Um, obviously, that's not the verse you, you intended, I don't think. So I'm not sure what you meant there. What part does it play in the process of salvation? Um, that I think is easy to answer, at least as, as it regards the Colossians 2 passage. Um, before you're saved, you're dead in trespasses, meaning that I've sinned and therefore a death sentence is over my head, meaning there's a future death that's coming. But I'm also dead in the sense of being alienated from God, separated from God. Now, when I get saved, both of those things are changed. There's no death sentence over me because Jesus died for my sins, so there is no, more, no longer a death sentence to be paid. And I will live eternally with him, and I have a relationship with him right now. I call him Abba Father. So that seems to be the case to me. Let's go to question 17. Digital says, what are your thoughts regarding humanoid fossils which scientists claim are part of our human evolution? Are they people from Noah's time, offspring of angels, or part of the gap creation theory? Blessings and thanks. Okay, I'll, let's let's just throw out a couple of these options that you mentioned, right? So let's say we have these really old fossils that were dating to, you know, s just super ancient times, and these things are we're saying, hey, these are part of evolution. Um, are they people from Noah's time? Maybe they're from Noah's time, which which would either put Noah's time back really far, or would challenge the dating of those fossils. Like some young Earth creationist groups are often saying, hey, these datings are wrong, these datings are inaccurate. And so they'll debate the different radioactive dating methods. Um, a lot of times, young Earth creationists talk about carbon dating, but that was more of like an issue in the 90s. And so like the more relevant dating methods are actually really varied. And you need to look at like potassium argon dating and there's other types of dating that matter. And I'm not a scientist, I'm not pretending to be. I'm just saying that if, if your answers are about carbon dating, you need to move into other areas and have answers for those things as well. Um, others would say, okay, offspring of angels. Um, I'm not sure how many would say that. Um, even if they thought there were offspring of angels, they probably would have thought that was a small number of uh, Nephilim type thing, and that's a whole other debate. Um, or part of the gap creationist theory. So the gap theory is often, to some people at least, the gap theory is this idea of like there being almost like two creations. So God creates the heavens and the earth, and then Gen I'll, let me take you to Genesis 1. I'll tell you, 
if, for those of you who don't know, don't know the gap theory, ask yourself in this verse, where do people find a gap? These two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Where's the gap? Right here. I highlighted it on your screen. So the gap theory is this idea that, that God created the heavens and the earth, and then the earth became not, in fact, some will translate it that way. They won't say the earth was without form and void. They'll say it became without form and void. And so they'll say, hey, there was like, there's been like an initial creation. Bunch of stuff went down. All kinds of history can happen in there. And then the earth became without form and void. And so they could uh, attribute ancient fossils to this time between Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2. Um, I don't think there's much going for the gap theory personally, but that, that would be that view. So then you ask me, um, like, I don't think there's a gap there. I, I think this is a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then this is a continuation. And it's talking about sort of, th you know, then God goes on to make things that are both in heaven and in the earth. I think this is a Hebrew phrase, heavens and earth, for universe, modern term universe. God created, created everything, including like that spiritual heaven location you're thinking of. So... Um, what are my thoughts on human fossils, which scientists claim are part of our human evolution? I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, let me, let me put it to you this way. So I've been studying nutrition recently. Let me get more comfortable since this is a ridiculously long stream. I've been studying nutrition recently a little bit. Um, I've been trying to get healthy. Okay, so I've, as some of you guys know, I've got, I've got uh, chronic back issues. I've been trying everything, and so this year. And especially the past few months, trying, exercising a lot and eating very healthy and looking into nutrition a lot. Um, see my gummy bears here? I haven't had, I haven't had a gummy bear or a piece of candy at all in like over two and a half months. So I'm just trying to be extremely healthy because I'm kind of at the point where I'll do anything to make it better. <laughs> so I'm studying nutrition. And as I studied nutrition, um, there's these different nutritional like methods people have. And, and I'm going somewhere with this. So forgive me for taking a moment. Keto, right? Low carb. Then there's uh, vegan. Then let's just take those three diets, for example. So keto diet, people will be like, dude, you got to do keto. And there's all this list of foods you should not eat because you're on keto. Then you have, um, and they say, these are bad foods. Don't eat these foods. These are good foods. Those are bad foods. Then you have like low carb. Oh man, you want to lose weight. You want to get in shape. Like you just got to lower your carbs. Which turns out to be makes life harder actually if you're trying to lift weights and stuff. But um, but carbs are the bad thing in this group, right? And then and then you you have these people over here who are like vegans, and their list of foods that are acceptable are like the reverse of of a lot of the keto people or the meat only people. There's another I could add the fourth category there. If you take all of these people's lists of foods that you can't eat, you will literally have nothing to eat. So as I'm studying nutrition, I'm looking into these things, and I've basically come to a point where for myself, I think most of these diets are, they don't have much going for them other than helping you control your caloric intake so you have low, lower calories in than you do the amount of calories you burn. That's what all the diets seem to have in common. And there seem to be a lot of scientific studies that support this idea that not that any of these diets are bad. They just aren't what they claim to be, right? They're all fine. You can, you know, as long as you do them carefully, you could do any of these diets if you do them carefully and with proper nutrition. But if you had asked me two months ago about keto, about um, 
whatever the other ones are I mentioned, all these four things. My answer to you would have been, I don't know, because I don't know that much about those things. I know they work, they seem to work for some people. I couldn't pick between them. Now I have more of an informed opinion about it. And I just think, you know, if that works for you, fine. But your low carb thing, you probably just lost a lot of water and it wasn't even fat the first week when you thought you lost a bunch of weight. <laughs> and so um, th these, these things I'm more informed now, at least I'd like to think I am. Um, it's the same way with this. With ancient fossils, you don't really know. The vast majority of those listening, when you hear stories about ancient fossils, you know this much and you're making these decisions about what you believe. I just want us to be aware of that. I'm not saying that someone who really studies this, this is their field, that they're not informed. I'm saying you're not. Most of the people I've talked to who believe, say, the whole evolutionary theory, the paradigm all the way from, from the moment of creation, what's called cosmic evolution, and before an atheist types in the comment, there is no such thing as cosmic evolution. Just Google it so you don't look like a fool. Um, and then you get to biological evolution, starting with abiogenesis and then going through um, the whole universal common descent. You know, all that kind of stuff. If you have that view, most of the people who have that view, I find don't really understand that view very well. They have this strong belief in it, but they have this very little understanding of it. And then the people who reject evolution, I find they have strong belief rejecting evolution, but they have fairly little understanding about those things. I think we're all in over our heads on most of these science-related issues. That's my bottom line. What is my opinion on humanoid fossils with science, which scientists claim are part of our human evolution? I don't know. I'm over my head on that issue. I don't know. Do I have to know? Am I supposed to always have an answer? I mean, I'd like to, but if I pretend to, then I'm just being a fool. So I think that this is the case for most of us. Um, you know, you're welcome to check out uh, CRI, Creation Research International. They, they're a website with lots of interesting information or Hugh Ross's Reasons to Believe. They have lots of interesting information. Um, or you could even look at um, BioLogos, who are not my favorite <laughs> group in the world, but but there are uh, believers who promote full-on evolution. And, and I'm going to say that I will not base my whole faith on my answer to a question about ancient fossils because it's an area I don't even understand that well. All right, number 18. Lynn Butler. I hope there's something there I said that was helpful to somebody. Uh, Lynn Butler, what is the mission of the church? I've recently been told that it is worship and not evangelism. Therefore, we cannot worship fully without a diverse local church. I'm a bit confused. Yeah, me too, Lynn. Um, I think someone's confused who is talking to you. <laughs> okay, so what is the mission of the church? I feel like this question can be a little loaded, right? Because it implies that we have one thing that the whole church is to do, and that's the only thing we do. And we filter everything through that. And if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to make it one thing we do, that thing better be very broad. Because the church has lots of functions in the Bible. Whether it's being the light of the world, or whether it's being disciples of Christ who are simply following him, or whether it's teaching and edifying one another, or whether it's worshiping, whether it's praying, whether it's just um, just living out the love of Christ in our relationships with one another. These are all different things. So that one mission of the church better and be a very broad thing. So you could say Jesus is like, okay, saying, you know, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. So maybe our mission is making disciples. But wait, if I'm just making myself a disciple, am I fulfilling that mission or do I have to make someone else a disciple too? Well, then you start to realize that it's it, we're just being a little bit... 
This is what happens to people who feel like they have to have a vision Sunday every, every January for their church. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but it can cause problems. When I feel like I have to, I have to give the vision, fresh vision, fresh vision and mission and mission and vision and vision, missions. And then it can lead me to a place of creating these simplistic, um, motivational phrases for my church that may not translate into practical application as easily. So what is the mission of the church? If I was to actually give the mission of the church, um, glorify God. I mean, there's, there's a broad statement that would absolutely work in all circumstances. Glorify God, be faithful to Christ. There's a great example, but I don't think you can reduce it to evangelism or to worship because neither of those encompasses all of what we're called to do. Then we get to the last part of your statement, which is the reason why this person told you the mission of the church's worship was because quote, we cannot worship fully without a diverse local church. Now, I mean, I don't know what that means, but it implies to me that I'm supposed to go into the church and look at the color of the skin of everybody in the fellowship and evaluate whether or not they are properly worshiping God based upon their skin colors. I think this is a bit off base from our mission if we're doing that. Now, if you have racism and, and there is church-wide racism, there's been churches full of people who would be like very unhappy to have somebody of the wrong color walk into the room. And that was racism, that was ungodly, that was unchristlike. But but when we get to the point where we're actually counting heads and 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 pull, holding up the color spectrum onto our church service and going, hmm, do I approve or do I not approve? Like, I think you're, you've lost the plot. So, yeah, I, I don't understand that. What it seems to me then is the mission of the church in this person's eye is to become culturally diverse, except what they really mean probably is um, ethnically diverse. But is there anything wrong with like, like, okay, so I live in Long Beach and there's this a large Cambodian population. Is there anything wrong with a, with a bunch of Cambodians all going to the same church together? They have a shared culture they've brought from when the uh, Khmer Rouge was chasing them out of their country and they, they came here as refugees. Like, is that wrong? Am I supposed to walk up to the, to the Cambodian church and I hold up my color wheel and I tell them like, you're not worshiping God fully enough because there aren't enough white people here. Where are your Mexicans? <laughs> like, what am I? Uh, like, this seems like we're missing the point. In Jerusalem, the early church was largely Jewish. That was okay. In Corinth, the church was largely Gentile. That was okay. But if a Jew had gone into that Gentile church and felt like they, um, I shouldn't say how they felt, if they were treated, and they may have felt this way because people feel different ways. Like you walk into a church and you're the only one of your skin color, you naturally feel awkward. That might just be you. Um, but if they had been treated like they were not fully part of Christ because of their skin, that's, that's uh, not just racism. This isn't an offense against the gospel of Christ. But I, I think that we can't hold up color wheels to our church. Um, it's not that simple. Number 19, Alicia says, what counts as work, works, sorry, what counts as works since faith without works is dead? What are some examples of works that a woman can do Serving my family, prayer, going to church. Please help. 
Well, work is this really broad, broad category of things you do that take your effort or energy. That was a work. It, it took your effort or energy, therefore it was a work. A good work would be a thing you do that took your effort or energy that was morally positive. It was a morally good thing. So what counts as works would be literally any good work you do um, that reflects, and, and here's where you qualify it a little bit, Alicia, is those good works reflect your faith in Christ. So um, you and your husband are having a tense moment and you decide, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to behave differently maybe than I usually do in a way that's positive because I follow Christ. That was a good work that was specifically related to your Christian faith. Um, you, you walk in love towards somebody else. You, 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 you pick up some trash. <laughs> like Any work you do at all. I don't think God separates our works into church-related, ministry-related works, and then non-ministry-related works. Like if, if you're the Christian doing this because it's been the impact of, of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you're serving Christ in the thing you're doing. That thing is a godly work. That thing is something that pleases the Lord. So any morally good activity you do counts as works. When those works are somehow related to your proclamation of faith in Christ, maybe because the fact that you're, you're trusting in Jesus is, is what's directing your actions, what's guiding your actions, and what's inspiring your actions, then that is especially a work that demonstrates your faith. I hope that that helps. I would have a really broad category for you, Alicia. And I wouldn't think you have to do a certain number of works to be saved. No, no, no. James is just saying, if you're genuine about your faith, you can show me with your life. That's all he's saying. Number 20, last question. Uh, Catherine Sandom says, what should dating look like as a Christian adult? What should the purpose be? Well, Catherine, I, I do not have the corner of the market here. I, I share a lot of people with a lot of people, the sense of frustration that um, I didn't really know what dating was supposed to look like. I got married at 30. So, uh, and even before then, I was like, I'm just not really sure exactly what dating is supposed to look like. The world does it so bad that as a Christian, I just felt like maybe I didn't want to do it at all, but then like, I want to get married. So what do I do? Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with a Christian intentionally dating, with a Christian intentionally saying, hey, can we go out and get to know each other? I think that what dating looks like that's different in the world might be in the areas of integrity. Um, Paul told Timothy to treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Isn't that an interesting thing? It's in First Timothy, I believe it's chapter five. He says, treat younger women as sisters with all purity. I think that's like a good attitude to have. Like if you're a guy and you see a girl and you're interested in her, you treat her like a sister. It doesn't mean that you can't like think, oh, well, she's beautiful. Like you know, I'd like to get to know her. But the whole time you treat her with integrity, you're not looking to take anything from her. You're looking to see if an investment towards marriage looks like a wise and good thing that both of you are interested in. And you take your time. You don't need to be in a big rush, but that is the end goal. Dating always has a purpose. You guys say, what's the purpose? The purpose of dating would be to get married, not dating to have a boyfriend, not dating just to have a girlfriend. Like there's this like box you have to fill called boyfriend. That's not the wisest way to do things. There's a box that you like to fill called husband, and you're just dating them a bit to see. But you you also don't want to defraud them. This is where First Thessalonians tells us, says the will of God for you is, um, I've had that on the screen forever. The will of God for you is um, to abstain from sexual immorality. So clearly dating should not cross any sexual immorality lines. It's not like you can't do that one thing, but you can do everything else because you're dating. 
that would be a, um, a mostly worldly way of looking at things. Rather, the Bible doesn't caution us against one particular behavior that a man and woman shouldn't do. It cautions us against all sexual immorality, this really broad scope of things. So yeah, I think sexual purity, treating them as in a sisterly fashion, even though you're dating, there's a sense of integrity in a relationship, and there's a sense of we're not married, but maybe we'll see how it goes kind of thing. So yeah, I don't really know what other advice to give. I mean, I'm sure I'd come up with more if I wasn't at question number 20 at the end of a very long stream, but my brain is mush. So Catherine, I'm sorry. Maybe we'll give you some, I'll give you some better advice on these issues later. I apologize. I'm just, I'm just out of fuel. So thank you guys for joining. Thank you mods for sticking around for those who did for such a long stream. I will not be with you on Monday because me and my wife are celebrating our anniversary and I don't usually do streams on my anniversary, <laughs> but I'll be with you the following Monday for the next installment, I believe, of the Women in Ministry series where we tackle the topic of husband and wives and does the Bible really say for wives to submit to their husbands or like many egalitarians claim, is it mutual submission which basically destroys this whole complementarian idea of the husband being more of a leader or at least in an unbalanced authority relationship in the home. We'll be going deep on that topic and then the week after, at least the time after that, will probably be a few weeks for me to prep it, will be head coverings, which you guys have been begging me to do for years. And then we'll finally dig in. We'll see how it goes. So, thanks guys. Sorry I'm a little wiped out at the moment. <laughs> Take care. Oh wait, I was going to pray. Let me do that. Father, we thank you for these questions, the people who've offered them and brought them. I thank you that they've had the courage and that they had the chance to get them through. We pray that for those who ask questions, that there be something they heard today that would really bless them. And as you as you continue to minister to them on these issues, as they think about it even beyond my words, that they would just grow in knowledge and wisdom and get clarity. And it wouldn't just come from me, but it would come from your spirit and from your word. And we ask, Lord, that you give us great wisdom when it comes to all these issues in life we try to face and tackle. And we, we, we want to throw our questions at the scriptures and have the scriptures give us wisdom. So we pray that you equip us with a better better skill at doing that. And we pray on this dating issue as well that um, for the Christians who are listening, who might be watching this, that as they date, they would not just fall into the patterns of the world around them or even some of the Christians around them, but they would think thoughtfully and deeply about how to go about these things in ways that honor Christ every step of the way, not paranoid at all, but in a way that exalts the integrity and godliness of the relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.